This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and managing editor of the Business of Government magazine. For almost 15 years, the IBM Center for the Business of Government has sought to connect research to practice, sponsoring third-party research on a broad range of public management issues facing us today. As the U.S. economy continues along the path to recovery, lawmakers are searching for ways to cut spending and reduce the country's $17 trillion debt. DOD, which consumes the second largest portion of government revenue after entitlements, will likely see significant cuts in the coming years. Indeed, cuts are already being made. At the same time, DOD must continue to support operations and modernize forces in order to support national security. In light of these budgetary constraints and evolving security challenges, DOD will need to gain every possible efficiency while reducing the temptation to buy defense on the cheap. To be successful, DOD must incentivize and partner with the private sector and find ways to emulate the private sector's overall accomplishment, improving performance while reducing costs. What acquisition challenges are facing the U.S. Department of Defense? What about prior attempts at DOD acquisition reform? And what actions can be taken to improve defense acquisition and the defense industrial base? Today, we'll explore these questions and much more with Dr. Jack Gansler, and Bill Lucian from the University of Maryland's School of Public Policy and authors of the IBM Center Report, Eight Actions to Improve Defense Acquisition. Jack, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Uh, Bill, welcome. Good to have you both. Thank you. It's good to be here. So, Jack and Bill, there have been various efforts to improve DOD's acquisition performance. Would you highlight the key aspects of these prior attempts at DOD acquisition reform? And more particularly, what lessons have been learned from these initiatives? Well, one that immediately occurs to me is the Packard Commission. This was at the time when we had these overpriced toilet seats and hammers and, you know, coffee pots and things like that. Uh, And we approached it by looking at it from an organizational structure because uh, we didn't really have a single person in the Pentagon or in the whole Department of Defense responsible for acquisition up to that point. So we created an undersecretary of defense. And we also didn't have any one person responsible for all the requirements for the weapon systems, for the services, and so forth. So we created the uh, vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Those two positions uh, then allowed us to make some structural changes, which I think is the right way to go about trying to do it, as contrasted to Congress's solution. Now, it's often good to tell some stories about, uh, you know, how, how did they react to it. Congress's solution to the overpriced toilet seats was to legislate a price not to exceed $220 each for a toilet seat 
and to add 5,000 auditors to make sure that adding 5,000 auditors really increased the cost significantly and the delays and so forth. It didn't solve the problem of acquisition because it, it actually raised the cost and slowed down the process. And Jack, you used to be in that role, right? Was I was, I was the undersecretary uh, at, at one point, yes. Bill, did you have anything to add? Yes. Yeah, so if you look at these uh, initiatives, many of them cover and try to address the same problems. If you look at the Carlucci initiatives, they, they came out with a list of topics that were very much similar to what you might see in the better buying power initiatives. And so one of the key problems is the cost of systems continues to grow consistently at about a 40% rate, and people don't necessarily implement the good ideas. And so one of the key issues, I think, is, is the organizational inertia and organizational culture and how difficult it is to change that. And so all of these initiatives had excellent ideas in general, but they're, they're not always well implemented. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. So um, your report also points out that the DOD uh, acquisition or it, basically it's the budget itself, the funding for DOD has been cyclical historically. And, and I want to transition to uh, what are some of the fiscal or, or global threat challenges facing DOD today that will influence how they procure? Well, one of the most obvious things is it's uncertain. And therefore, the preparation for a wide variety of future potential events uh, has to uh, increase your cost because you got, how do you handle everything from terrorism to cybersecurity to tank-on-tank engagements and so forth? And uh, that, that uncertainty represents uh, a challenge when the budgets are declining. And that's been a, a traditional problem. Uh, and in fact, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, when he was there, Mike Mullen, said the number one national security problem is the debt. Because if we can't handle it all, how do we get prepared for it? And our strategy for the last like 50 years has been technological superiority. That's been our national security strategy. Well, then that means you have to continue to invest in research. And one of the first things that always goes when the budget declines, the first three things actually are travel, training, and research. So training and research are kind of foolish things to cut. On the other hand, uh, because especially with the uncertainty, you want to be able to respond rapidly, and that's what training is for, readiness. And research is so that you can stay ahead technologically. And we're losing our lead in that. And technology has now become globalized so that everybody has technology. It's hard to maintain technological leadership unless you invest in it. Bill, did you have any? Well, when you look at the budget, you can see that the average budget over the last 70 years for DOD has been about $480 billion. And so we're still well above that level. But at the same time, you have increasing O&M costs and increasing healthcare costs, increasing support costs. So there's a tremendous squeeze on what's left in the budget to allow for modernization. And that's, I believe, a significant threat. One, one of the things that I could add to that is, is that people believe that this 18-year cycle that we see in the defense budget is somehow a law of nature. It's not. It's exogenously driven. Every time there's an external event like 9-11 or Pearl Harbor or North Korea, you know, any of those events, that's what drives the budget. It's not just a law of nature that uh, follows every 18 years. You build it up and it comes down and goes up and comes down. 
I, th I think it's important to recognize that this uncertainty of, of the f strategic environment is also affecting the uncertainty in the budget environment. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a very good point. And I wanted to talk about tr transitioning a little bit to some of the initiatives the current administration has been pursuing around DOD acquisition uh, reform or cutting costs. And, and one of them, it, it, one of the series is insourcing, this term called insourcing. And I was hoping you gentlemen would help me understand what is meant by this term, insourcing, and what are the implications of pursuing such a, a, an initiative vis-a-vis -vis the DOD? Well, first of all, the, the most obvious thing is that it's political. It's politically driven and particularly by the government union so that when you have a situation where you used to gain enormous benefit by competing public against private, now you don't because when you decide to insource it, it's sole source. Mm -hmm. And the example that's easiest to point out there is maintenance. The Congressional Budget Office did a comparison of maintenance in-house by government workers, in other words, versus competitively done in the private sector. They said it was 90 percent more expensive to do it sole source in the government than to compete it. Now, you could allow the government, of course, to compete in public-private competitions, but Congress has outlawed that also. And so right now the law says 50 percent of all maintenance work shall be done sole source by the government. And that's been driven by primarily something called a depot caucus. It's, it's the largest caucus on Capitol Hill, 135 members, for the maintenance work in the depots. And that's because many of them have like 20,000 voters in their district, and you can't find where you can put a maintenance depot that isn't in a congressional district. So it's, it's mandated by Congress that they will do in-house that much more work. And there's no argument, at least for sole sourcing, public or private, that, that says you've eliminated competition now. And it's certainly not an inherently governmental function, which we can come to later. But, but uh, wrench turning is clearly – I read the Constitution carefully. Wrench turning is not in there as an inherently governmental function. <laughs> and, and the other thing about this is if you're going to insource – and I don't want to jump ahead – but you're going to need that competency inside the government. I mean, if you, if you, if you insource something and you can't do it, you don't have the capability – it becomes largely a political act, really. I mean, yeah. Bill, do you have anything to add? Well, I think there was a belief that insourcing would save money. Okay. And I, I think that came from comparing, if you look at some of the articles and, and the advocates, they compared uh, salaries of the government employees with the full burden cost of contractors. So you had stories like a guard cost the government, say, $150,000, but a Marine private only cost $20,000 a year. And that was the comparison. And that's a false comparison because it's not the full burden cost to the government for that private. So you had this sense that insourcing would save money, and that proved to be false. The really, uh, contractors and government personnel, when you look at the full burden cost, come out to be about the same cost to the government. It depends on the function yeah. and, and, as you pointed out, whether or not they have the skills and knowledge. But the example that, that Bill just used of guards, the Congressional Budget Office also did comparison of public versus private there. And again, the, the county, the overhead difference because you get the retirement pay and the medical long-term coverage and the facilities and all that, which private sector has to include in their costs. And the, the, again, it was 90 percent more expensive to do it in-house. Mm -hmm. 
with the guards than it was to, to have it private. You don't hear about this enough. That's no. The, that's what's problematic. Well, that's an important point yeah. that, that, you know, good news is no news. And therefore, you don't hear about the, the positive side. What you see in the paper is waste, fraud, and abuse. It's, in fact, in a lot of the articles, treat that as one word. When, when I, yeah, right. So, so the, the fact that fraud is different than waste, one is illegal, one is just dumb, you know. Uh, and we found in the Packard Commission, we did a public survey, most of the public, by reading those articles, ha- thinks that the industry is overcharging mm-hmm. and making excessive profits. Mm-hmm. What they, again, aren't aware of is the fact that the profit made by the defense industry is actually less than a regulated industry. I mean, it's important distinctions between those terms, fraud, waste, and abuse, and what they mean. And uh, there was another initiative in spring 2010 released by the uh, DEPSEC at DOD, and it was the Better Buying Power Initiative. Could you tell us a little bit about that initiative, and how has it evolved since its inception? Well, one of the things that is essentially wrong in it was it it, it said all services will be recompeted every three years. Mm -hmm. That's a total disincentive to a service company. Instead, what it it should have said is you'll be rewarded with a follow-on if you reduce the cost and improve the performance. That's an incentive to get higher performance at lower cost. And that's been dropped in the follow-on better buying power 2.0, yeah. Uh, but I think that's the kind of thing that you just don't want to incentivize <laughs> backwards, you know. Well, I, I think that was a change in how the, the uh, initiative evolved. Okay. Uh, the first one was more prescriptive. It said always do this okay. or always use fixed price contracts. And the second one tried to be a lot more nuanced and said use the appropriate contract structure, use the appropriate kind of competition. Was that because folks complain? I mean, could you give us some? Is it because they, there was lessons learned and they influenced? Well, them, I think or? there was a lot of pushback. It from, was a lot from, from industry, industry mm-hmm. uh, particularly like with the uh, lowest price technically accepted. What are the unintended consequences of focusing on? And I think Jack, you got to this a little bit with the disincentives. But when you focus on reducing costs, it, you, you gentlemen point out in your report that it it leads to unintended consequences. What are they? Well, if you end up focusing on low cost Mm -hmm. and forget about high performance and high reliability, you get cheap junk. And that's not what we need. What we need is high performance at low cost. And to get that, you need incentives. And the way you can get incentives, one of them is, of course, through competition. Another is by rewarding, if you have a sole source supplier, that they can either get, A, higher profit if they do lower cost, because profit's only a small percentage. It's only 5% of the, of the total cost. If you can figure out how to reduce the total cost, you could give them 6% profit on a smaller number. Okay, so that, that's one way you can do it. Another way you can do it is by incentivizing them through follow-on business. If they do a good job, they'll get the follow-on. If they don't get higher performance at lower cost, throw it open to competition. That's, that's essentially the threat of competition. But it works. And compliance has an issue. If everything becomes a compliance game, it's a disincentive, correct? I mean, That's a telling you how to do it. Yeah. Instead of telling you we, what we want, yeah. it's, it's how to do it. And, and writing a rule that says you're going to follow those rules doesn't give you any incentive to do it differently. And in fact, we've been writing more and more rules, and and uh, the, I have one chart that actually shows the number of pages of regulation, how they keep increasing, 
And, uh, you know, they've actually added on that chart over 100,000 pages of regulations since about mid-'80s to today. Bill, did you have anything to add? And often the appearance of saving money in the short term will increase your costs in the long term. So if you don't uh, develop dual sources up front, which may cost you more, the long-term program costs will be higher. And and that's the, the dilemma we face is that, you know, we focus on the short term and the long-term costs often increase. A good example of that is when you have to upfront pay for the second source. People say, why do we need a second one when we already have one? You know, in fact, uh, the Great Engine War is an example. This was the engines for the F-16, F-15. And the Air Force decided, because they were having trouble with one engine, that they would introduce a second engine. And both engines ended up getting higher performance, higher reliability, and lower costs. The Air Force said they saved over $4 billion on that. But now we come to the F-35, and and the Air Force, and even the President of the United States and Congress. But the President of the United States said, why do we need a second engine when we already have one? And so they have not allowed a second engine to be – even in this case, the second engine supplier – General Electric in that case, said that they would do the development free. They'd do it under their own overhead. But they still chose not to have competition in that program on the engine, which is the highest maintenance cost of the system. The F-35 is the largest program in history. Wouldn't you want to try to do something that makes sense? What actions can be taken to improve defense acquisition and the defense industrial base? We will explore these questions and so much more when our special edition of the Business of Government Hour, A Conversation with Authors, returns. The latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine, and with each edition I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors, exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness with Dr. Jack Gansler and Bill Lucian from the University of Maryland's School of Public Policy and authors of the IBM Center Report, Eight Actions to Improve Defense Acquisition. So uh, in your report, uh, Jack and Bill, you reference or outline eight actions that can be taken to improve the results of acquisition programs and at the same time strengthen industrial base, the DOD industrial base or the defense industrial base to be specific. I want to explore each one of these recommend, recommended actions. A- and the first one, you counsel folks to use the appropriate form of competition during all phases of acquisition. But what is the problem that you're the remedy of the action that you're kind of diagnosing. What's the issue there? What are folks not using the right? How do you of create continuous yeah. incentives? Okay, it's the incentives part that people don't, they're missing are missing, okay. and you you want to do it for the right reasons. So if you're one of the suppliers, you want to figure out how do I get a higher profit with a guaranteed follow-on, and the way you do it is getting higher and higher performance at lower and lower costs with higher and higher reliability. And so we want to figure out how to compete 
in each phase of the program. They start with the prototypes, and you, that's where the technology is first demonstrated. Then you want to make sure you compete that, at least have two, maybe three. It depends upon you know, how expensive it is and, and who has the best ideas. But that's where new technology comes in right away. And then when you get into the production phase, there's always continuous change taking place. Thousands of changes for one reason or another on most of these big programs. And they want those to be offered in a competitive environment. So I want to change something. Well, oh, I decided I would like to have something else added. I mean, people who build houses understand this. Oh, yeah. oh you forgot to add windows, you know. <laughs> and, oh, we want windows in the back, you know. And so, well, oh, the cost of doing that on a sole source basis is going to be very high. In a competitive environment, When you, what you find is, oh, we can do it for the same price as we had originally given you. And that's what happens in the, in the real world in competition. That's what market forces do. And we have to make sure that occurs in the, not only in the prototype and the production, but also in the support. Because that's the big cost, as Bill mentioned earlier, yeah. the, the operating and maintenance costs. And so we need to figure out ways to keep that competition going. Yeah, the other challenge is that people often want to have competition for competition's sake. And so when you have services, you want to make sure that the company that's providing the service will make investments to improve their provision of that service. And so then they have to have some time to make that money back. And so you want the contract to be long enough so they can make the appropriate investments. And if they continually improve on the provision of that service, you'd like to reward them with a follow-on contract and not necessarily compete it. If you mandate competition every uh, two or three years, the inclination is going to be not to invest any money but to provide the, the service at the lowest cost possible and increase your profits, knowing that you there's an excellent chance that you may lose that uh, contract in the next go-around. Yeah, so I want to actually understand, um, you, you kind of touched on the different types of competition, Jack, when you mentioned it. And, and Bill, you just mentioned the idea of competition for its own sake is not necessarily fruitful. So what are the key steps in implementing the action, the recommended action you folks are uh, outlining in your report? Well, one thing that is hard to do, perhaps, but necessary, and that is past performance should matter and, and whether you're a qualified source. Uh, because if you if you have a good historic record, that will help a lot in, in simplifying the process. And the other thing you want to do is to not drive the, the cost very high for the competition. Mm -hmm. So if you have a thousand people bidding on it, you know th that may be fair, but it's also much more expensive. And in fact, people don't try very hard when they have that a thousand people bidding against them because the probability of win is small. And so you want to shape the competition. And, and, down, and that's why the prototype competition is usually just two or three uh, that are funded. In all cases, they will have gone through a qualification first. Are they qualified? Do they know what they're doing? Uh, have they a decent history? And then let them demonstrate. And the demonstration is a key piece of this competition in that case. Bill? Well, I think you want to monitor uh, the competition at the, at the sub-tier levels also because often at the uh, system level – uh, several competitors may be using the same uh, uh, provider for some subsystem. And and if if you don't have competition at that level, for example, the engine, uh, you wind up with, with one source effectively for a high-cost item. So you want to watch that competition at the sub-tier sub level also. 
In fact, it's important that people don't recognize a typical airplane, for example, 85% of the costs are in the subsystems. The electronics, the radar, the, the engines, uh, all, all of the things that go into it. Just final assembly and test is, is maybe 20% of the cost. And, and you don't need two lines to do that because it's not going to really be that cost effective. But as Bill points out, if you had competition on the engines, competition on the radars, competition on the avionics systems, et cetera, that's where the big cost savings can come about because that's 85 percent of the costs. And I know this is off book, if you will, but when you do stuff like that, uh, when you compete the subsystems, do you think that there's a need for a lead systems integrator in this kind of an environment or is this something you want to touch on at all? Yes, because uh, you want someone who knows what they're doing. <laughs> Again, uh, and, and one of the things that's been proposed recently by the Air Force yeah. is that the government be the lead systems integrator for ICBMs. Ooh. And, you know, why wouldn't you use the two or three companies that have done it before? Yeah. Uh, and again, uh, you need a lead systems integrator, but you also need to encourage them and you want to have some visibility on the government side into the fact that they are or are not competing the lower tiers. Okay particularly the critical elements of the lower tiers. Now, when, when you can use commodities, you know, it, it's commercial stuff, then the market's taking care of that in a certain sense because the market is competitive. But uh, you need to know something about the quality of the stuff that they're giving you and you keep testing it. And if it, uh, it has to be reliable as well as lower cost and, and high performance. Mm-hmm. Well, the other action you gentlemen uh, outline in your report is the focus on the proper use of uh, it's Alphabet City, but it's indefinite delivery and indefinite quantity IDIQ contracts, which I think has become a, uh, its own word now. What are IDIQs? And perhaps you could highlight some of the examples in action. And would you outline the benefits to both government and contractors for using this type of uh, of contract? Well, the concept behind it, the is indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity. You don't know how many you're going to buy or when you're going to need them. But on the other hand, the, the concept behind it is also that you're going to have a couple of qualified people that can bid competitively. Now, somehow to be fair, and there's always this question of fairness versus effective and efficient, but to be fair, they say, well, let's have anybody who wants to be an accepted winner to bid on these and one of them I can think of is the Navy program has 2,200 winners. So if, if every time they put out a request, and the government is now even forcing people to say when you have an IDIQ that all of the people who are the winners on the first round, the qualification round, must therefore bid on each of the uh, article, items that come out for bid. And that's very expensive in the bid and proposal costs. Yeah, why would I want to do that overhead-wise? From See, the that's contractor? the point. The reason you do, want to do it is be, to avoid protest. Oh. And this is a major issue that if, if you know, Joe's Garage says, I, I want to bid on this, and, uh, well, Joe, I'm sorry you're not qualified, uh, then Joe will protest. It's not fair. And so they avoid the protest round, which often sl- delays programs significantly. And many companies today are even using protests as a strategy. It's fascinating how, how, how many more you see nowadays. Well, if, if you're the incumbent, mm-hmm. then by protesting, you delay the, 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 the shift to somebody else for six months or nine months or longer you know, during the legal process. Bill, do you have anything to add? Yeah, well, I think one of the key benefits of the government is to reduce administrative burden. Mm-hmm. 
So you get all these contractors to agree to terms and conditions, and then you can uh, put out a task order and quickly get the, the work accomplished or the product uh, purchased. So that's a key benefit to the government. So the, it's a noble uh, goal. But often if they're misused, uh, they, they wind up with a lot of unintended consequences. And you, can, are, you, can you explain on that? What, what, what are some of the abuses of the IDIQs? I think well, Jack alluded to a couple, but well, you can have uh, you can you can uh, bundle a lot of tasks into these big omnibus contracts, and then try to to get those awarded. You can award too many, uh, uh, have too many awardees for the amount of work that needs to be done. So a lot of people wind up with very little or no work mm-hmm. under these contracts. Uh, you can sometimes discourage people from submitting unsolicited proposals because they feel if they solicit it, then the sponsor feels like they have to compete it out and they'll put it out for an award under one of these contracts. And so there's a lot of things that happen uh, with these contracts that wind up causing issues for both the, the providers and for the government. So what are, what are some of the steps that you folks offer in your report for implementing the proper use of IDIQs? What some recommendations do you have? Well, more limited use of it, for one thing, as Bill pointed out. Yeah. Uh, that when you have thousands of people bidding, it just doesn't make sense. And so you, you do it by scope mm-hmm. and prior performance of those companies that have experience and know what they're doing. And you don't drive it up to a thousand people putting in their proposals. You know, and, and so your chances of winning, again, using all these things are done for incentive reasons. And if you are bidding against two or three companies, Your chances are much better, especially if you've got a good record and you can make an attractive bid. So you're more tended to bid on them rather than abusing it. That's the way I think I would do it, Bill. Well, uh, I think a key is to scale the contract to to the work that you expect. And so if you only expect X amount of dollars to be awarded, you would scale it so... You don't have so many awards that that most people won't get any awards or won't get any work or get very little work under the contract. And I think that's a a complaint we hear from many companies and and contractors that they put all this work together, put these proposals together, submit them, get awarded, and then they don't get any awards under the contract. We'll identify more actions to improve defense acquisition when this special edition of the Business of Government Hour, A Conversation with Authors, returns. What can government executives learn from the GAO's high-risk list? What have agencies done over the years to get their programs off the list? How can programs stay off the list in the first place? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Dr. Don Kettle, author of the IBM Center Report, Managing Risk, Improving Results, Lessons for Improving Government Management from GAO's High-Risk List. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors, exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness with Dr. Jack Gansler and Bill Lucian from the University of Maryland's School of Public Policy and authors of the IBM Center Report, Eight Actions to Improve Defense Acquisition. 
So, uh, Jack and Bill, in your report, you outline um, the other area you focus in on is the use of best value trade-off source source selection strategies um, for complex or most high-knowledge content kind of work. And what I mean by that is the growing use of the lowest price, technically acceptable, LPTA, as a source selection strategy. What's the problem with that and why is this happening? Why is this increasing around complex services? Buying uh, something on the basis of low price, technically acceptable LPTA. Uh, you wouldn't buy your car that way. You wouldn't get your heart surgeon that way. You wouldn't do it uh, in the real world. You, you make your judgments on the basis of best value, the combination of performance and cost. Mm-hmm. But if it's just a, a plain, simple commodity, you might just say, well, that ketchup's as good as another ketchup, so I'll buy that one. It's lower cost. So why do you see a propensity of contract um, officers using LPTA? I think there's several reasons. One, it makes the source selection a little easier. If you qualify the bid as being technically acceptable, you just have to look at the price. That's one reason. The second reason, it, it makes it easier to, to immunize yourself against a protest. Mm-hmm. So when you have a best value source selection, best value trade-off source selection, it's a lot easier to find a problem in the source selection criteria or how it was implemented, and so there's more likely to be a protest. So when you use LPTA, I think uh, you can sort of immunize yourself against a protest. And then finally, you, the intent is to save money. And so uh, what contractors often talk about is a race to the bottom. So wow. you've got this fear, you know, constantly just cutting costs and cutting costs. In the end, cutting the quality of the service that's provided to be able to win the award. And so those are the kinds of things that, that create a problem for the government when they overuse LPTA. And those are the reasons they try to use it. So what, what can they do to use it more properly? What are some of the suggestions you folks have? Well, limit where you use it. Okay. Limit it to the commodities where it's uh, complex weapon systems or complex services, value is important. But on the other hand, if it's the same thing that five different people are offering you as a commodity, then you can pick the lower cost. And you get, as Bill points out, you get rewarded in a sense because today affordability is one of the driving considerations. And therefore, with a lower budget, we're going to try and pay attention to cost. But we don't want to get a lot of junk. And that's what you are driven to with the low price technically acceptable. I think one of the other things you can do, Michael, is to ensure that you look at past performance, which isn't always done with LPTA-type source selections. And so when you when you look at past performance, you could at least eliminate the poor performers or the people that haven't performed well on previous efforts. So we talked about IDIQs. We talked about LPTA. I'd like to switch a little bit over to um, an effort to control growth. And periodically, DOD embraces fixed-priced contracts. Could you tell us a little bit more? uh, Why are they often problematic? And when are they best used? Well, the first thing is is if it's a technological advancement, there's a high risk to to using fixed price uh, in that sense that you don't know if it'll work. <laughs> it's a simple, simple idea there. But you also want to create some incentives again. Now, fi- a fixed price in a competition, how do you win it unless you bid low? And then what they count on is so-called buying in by bidding low 
and then counting on the thousands of changes that come along. Well, cost plus contracts uh, uh, reduce the transaction cost for making a lot of these changes when you have a lot of uncertainty in a program. And we have a lot of history where the DOD has tried to use fixed-price contracts for development. And the programs have been generally unmitigated disasters. You had the C-5, uh, which almost drove Lockheed to bankruptcy, the F-111, and recently, the most recent case was the A-12, which is still being litigated. And so all of this is feeling that a fixed-price contracts will constrain the cost. In the end, it really doesn't. And it places a, often a lot of risk on a contractor. It's unacceptable risk and can uh, really wind up costing the government a lot more than using you know, more appropriate cost-plus contracts. So what are some of the – what ways can the cost reimbursement contracts be used? Like, what are some of the actions you would prescribe? The development programs yeah. are the appropriate place for them, okay. I think. But with still monitoring, mm-hmm. you give a bid back on a on – a, cost-based contract, you would need the government, to either themselves or with one of their advisory groups, maybe private sector, mm-hmm. telling you that that's overpricing. Oh. Or if you can do it in a competitive environment, that's even better because you have two people in a, on a cost-based contract. Uh, they'll, they'll say, oh, and that, that, that it doesn't really add to my costs. One of them will and that, that one will win. Well, the cost-plus contracts also place an additional burden on the government because there's potentially a tendency to gold plate the system or put in unnecessary requirements because people feel like it can be covered in the contract. So you really takes a lot more effort on the part of the government to monitor those contracts to make sure the requirements don't change any more than is absolutely required so the cost doesn't grow excessively. So I think it does take a little bit of extra work, but I think in the end it works out better. There's almost a perverse incentive in the fixed-price contract because I know know what companies might tend to do is to say, I've got a better idea. Wouldn't you like to have this? And they say, of course we'd like to have it. Well, that means you're going to double the cost. In a cost-based contract, you may want to have a higher incentive to simply do a good job and get reimbursed for the cost. But in a fixed-price contract, you want to figure out some way to create a change so that you can get paid more for that, especially if you're the only one producing it. In a certain way, is this sort of like the you, you really need a Yugo, but you're buying a Cadillac? I mean, is, it, is, is that is that is that a, yeah. a good metaphor in a sense? No, in fact, I use that, that example frequently when people, uh, you know, ask me what about the low price technically acceptable. Do you drive a Yugo? You know, that's the point. It, we don't select on that basis. But on the other hand, if we can't afford a Cadillac, we, we might buy something in between. But I think the real key is then using the appropriate contract structure for the phase of the program you're in. So eventually you want to uh, move to a firm fixed price contracts in the production phase of the program. But at least initially, often the cost plus contract is more appropriate. And so you, you don't want to proscribe which kinds of contracts the contracting officer should use. They should have all the tools they need for the, the breadth of the program. And it really depends on the phase. You folks uh, in your report mention or introduce a concept called dual-use industrial operations. And I'd like for you to uh, maybe give our listeners some background on this concept. What exactly do you mean? Well, the idea would be the same factory Mm -hmm. does both commercial and military work. And not just in the research phase, but in the production phase. 
and even in the maintenance phase because you're very familiar with the work and you can figure out how to, in a market environment with the commercial side, you learn how to do things more efficiently and effectively. And so you want to combine the two partly for economies of scale if you can put the two together in the same plan. I'll give you an example. Boeing was building commercial transports and military transports in the same plant in Wichita. They were basically forced by government regulations and oversight to separate these two. As a result of separating and building the commercial plant in California and building the military ones in Wichita, both prices went up. The commercial one went up because they lost economies of scale. But the forcing was done because of the government rules that discourage dual use, that discourage putting the two things together. And it even discourages commercial firms from supplying some of the lower tier stuff the bill was talking about to the primes. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, if, if, if you have a dual use plant, you have to use government cost accounting for the commercial stuff. And, and that's expensive. It's a totally different form than the normal commercial cost accounting system. Also, if you have a commercial stuff, uh, it's a discouragement to a commercial supplier to work on a defense program. I'll give you a simple example, again, because the stories, I think, make, make it a lot easier to understand it. Boeing had to pay $15 million to export a 767. That's a commercial transport. Why is anyone worried about that? Because in the electronics, they had a single chip that was also in the Maverick missile. And the Maverick missile's subsystems were under export control. And by Boeing shipping a commercial transport, that chip was a commercial chip. Mm -hmm. And by shipping this big airplane, they had to pay $15 million to allow them to export it. it. It's foolish. Yeah. But this discourages commercial firms from doing defense work. And yet often these commercial firms are more advanced than the defense work. Something people don't know about is that today when you compare the investment in research from the private sector industry, commercial industry, mm-hmm. against the government's investment, the commercial is twice the government's investment. And so why wouldn't we want to take full advantage of this? In order to maintain our technological superiority, we should use commercial stuff more. How can DOD uh, work to open competition to non-traditional commercial firms? And you alluded to it, but can you expand on it a little bit? It changed the rules. Change the rules. I mean, it, it, there is in the, in the federal acquisition regulations in the FAR, there's, there's a, an attempt. FAR Part 12 is supposed mm-hmm. to be for buying commercial stuff. But a lot of the contracting people don't understand that. The intent was to really get the ability to buy commercial things. And instead, they still try to apply all these rules to the commercial stuff and some of the cost accounting, the export controls, things of that sort. The commercial firms just say, no, thank you, because they have to be competitive in the commercial world. Well, if they do participate, they'll set up a separate operation to deal specifically with the government so they can maintain uh, separate books, separate procedures, and not mix the two operations. And in the end, we lose because we don't get the economies of scale. We don't get necessarily the the cross-flow of technologies and information in the way we'd like. There have been some separate studies done about what the cost of all of that regulation is. In, a long time ago, I did, had Coopers and Library do a study. It was 18 percent, 
at that time. More expensive if you have to build a commercial item with government regulations. Now, the Air Force has given some speeches recently saying that now up to 25 percent. And there are some independent studies done by government agencies that said it's up to 30 percent for the same item built to government regulations in a government-regulated facility versus in a commercial operation. And so that's what Bill was talking about. Why, why do we want to do that? Well, because it's the law. What does the future hold with the federal acquisition workforce? We'll find out when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour, A Conversation with Authors, returns. From forging a unity of effort in homeland security, to strategizing today how to feel the U.S. Army of tomorrow, to pursuing affordable housing, eliminating fraud, waste, and abuse in healthcare, and securing cyberspace, the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine. And with each edition, I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. The purpose is not to offer a definitive solution to many of the management challenges facing government executives, but to provide a resource from which to draw practical, actionable recommendations on how best to confront these issues. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. We bring you insights and interviews from government executives who are changing the way government does business. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors, exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness with Dr. Jack Gansler and Bill Lucian from the University of Maryland's School of Public Policy and authors of the IBM Center Report, Eight Actions to Improve Defense Acquisition. Is there an imbalance between today and today's uh, world, an imbalance between outsourcing and insourcing within the government? I think in some areas there is. Like, like the Congress passing laws ab- about prohibiting public-private competitions when the data show that with over a 1,000 of them having taken place, that in fact the average savings is over 38 percent. And the interesting thing about it is that when the government wins almost 50 percent of them, they dramatically lower their cost. In order to be competitive – as contrasted to when they were doing it sole source, they they can do it for fewer people uh, and a better job in order to if the competition is based on performance and cost mm-hmm. is what you you, you should do, uh, but that has been outlawed, uh, and in spite of the fact that this was done by the Congressional Budget Office. Phil, do you have anything to add? Well, I I think. There are certain uh, jobs that should be insourced. Uh, there was a t- period of time where a lot of acquisition functions, uh, the acquisition workforce was so overwhelmed that they were contracting out some jobs that probably were legitimately inherently governmental. And so uh, if you look at it from that narrow perspective, bringing those functions back into the government is probably a good thing. Uh, there's examples. Uh, IRS uh, had competitions where they competed some functions, and and the government won and reduced the the cost by 75 percent, even though the government won. So the question is, why wouldn't the government be able to do that without 
without competition. Well, there's no incentive. It, there's no incentive to cut cut your organization down. You don't get promoted by shrinking your organization. In fact, the interesting thing that that we found in looking at those cases where the government won by lowering its costs significantly is Bill's example. What happened is those people found other jobs in the government or they went to work for the industry. Interesting. Only 5% of them were riffed, uh-huh. uh, were actually laid off. Sure. Uh, and that was surprising that when they were bidding, you know, up to 75 percent, this is an example, of reduced cost, and yet still they found other jobs for them. Uh, switching gears a little bit, uh, I want to talk about the aspect of your report that counsels the DOD or defense industry about globalization, the benefits of globalization. And, you know, there are some skeptics that worry about the Trojan horse, the back door built into foreign supplied systems, particularly in the case of software. You point out in your report, gentlemen, that there's huge benefits to globalization that could be provided to DOD acquisition. What are those benefits, A? And B, how do you mitigate the negatives that, that some folks have? Well, the... The one thing that people are worried about is some bad parts or uh, Trojan horses hidden in them and things like that. You can test, but you also can look at reliable sources offshore from allies that you trust. Uh, and the main difference here is that in many areas, the, the uh, foreign supplier is well ahead of the DOD mm-hmm. in its quality. The reality is that every single U.S. weapon system, this was a DOD report, mm-hmm. said every single U.S. weapon system has foreign parts in it. And the reason is because they're better, not because they're cheaper. Mm-hmm. And if we want to be state-of-the-art, technological superiority, we have to take the best stuff that's available in different places that you can find that. And the, the part of the, that is because they're actually investing more offshore. If you take the OECD countries' investment and compare those to the total U.S. commercial and private, uh, private and, and public, I mean, and you, you can see that they are spending much more than we are in, in total. And so why not take advantage of that? Places, for example, I'll give you another story. Uh, the number one killer and maimer of American soldiers and Marines is roadside bombs. So when we said we're going to have to do something about that, we want to improve the armor on those vehicles that are carrying our soldiers, you look around the world and who's got the most unfriendly neighbors? Israel. So we now get the Israeli armor, but it's built in Vermont. And so we get the political as well as the security benefits of using a foreign product. The design is, is a foreign product. And the same thing when we were looking at that for these vehicles, it turns out that the best shock absorbers were coming from Germany and the, and the best tires for, for protection were coming from France. And, and I can give you lots of other examples of places where outs, uh, other countries are ahead of us in the technology. And so why not take advantage of that as long as they're trusted allies? Well, I want to switch gears to um, combating the loss of acquisition knowledge as you watch, as I understand it, the the acquisition workforce in the federal government, uh, not specific to DOD, will retire in the next couple of decades, if not sooner. You point out that by 2021, approximately 50 percent of the acquisition workforce will be eligible for retirement. How can we deal with this brain drain? Right now, 
uh, 55% of the defense acquisition workforce have less than five years of experience. That's not the experienced workforce. It's not being valued enough. And I think we need to value it and, and acknowledge. And by the way, that's not just the, the shoppers, the buyers, uh, if you will. That acquisition workforce includes people doing maintenance, includes uh, across the board uh, work, uh, everything to do with program management, for example. Uh, and, and across the board, government acquisition workforce. Uh, when I was undersecretary, I was told I had 300,000 people working for me. Well, my close friends, of course. You know. <laughs> I didn't get to know all of them, but the reality is now that's been dramatically cut. As as the, the budget was going up in, after 9-11, but the workforce was not going up with it. And, and it's been cut even more as a result of the combination of aging and not replacement and uh, the undervaluing of it. I think what we need to recognize is the importance of the acquisition workforce. In order to get high quality at low cost, you need smart people doing this, trained, well-experienced people. And I think it's interesting when you just focus on a, a comment, they often have comment about shoppers. That's the first phase. I mean, we're not talking about the co-tar, the people that are managing the program itself. I mean, that's the most significant phase. Uh, I, I would argue that's one that nobody really talks about once you're awarded and they, they kind of go in that direction. But that's a, you need a lot of skill set for that. But, Bill, did you have anything to add? Yeah, I think one of the key uh, things that the government needs to do is to sort of increase the, the number of people that are allowed to do rotational assignments and increase the cross flow between industry and the private sector. A lot of these problems we allude to are based on the fact that the government people don't understand how industry works, what incentivizes the businesses to, to operate. And conversely, the, the private sector uh, companies don't understand the constraints the government faces. So if you can in, increase that cross-flow and get experienced people from the private sector to operate in the government for a while and then maybe go back, I think that would benefit both the, the contractors and the government uh, acquisition workforce. Now, we have some programs that do that, but they're generally fairly small and, sh and, and, and limited. And there are often a lot of restrictions that inhibit that kind of a cross flow. So we need to look at those and try to uh, find ways to increase that and uh, bring in more senior people from the private sector to help the government do their programs more effectively and conversely uh, allow the contractors to, to sort of uh, better be able to sell to the government. Even the military, they, there's not a program for rotation a year with industry, mm -hmm. but it's, it's as Bill says, it's just a dozen people. Mm -hmm. uh, and I used to actually interview the, those to see what they learned and what they were doing, and, and we we could greatly increase it without conflict of interest. The exchange between government people going into industry and industry people going into the government just avoid the, that particular company when you're making source selections. Yeah. And it's easy to do. I mean, I had to go through that. Yeah. So, gentlemen, I, I want to talk about the future. And if you, if you could, could you tell us a little bit about what you think and your prescriptions for the future in this area? Well, I think the first thing that's most important is the, uh, making a lot of the statements we've been making here available and publicly no known. I mean, I think that this idea that uh, the press are finding all the examples that they can use of waste, fraud, and abuse mm -hmm. uh, as contrasted to what's good practices. 
And if Congress can understand those and the political appointees can understand those, and as Bill pointed out, the, what are the incentives for industry and how do you incentivize them and even incentives for the government? Promote people who do a good job you know, and, and reward them. Uh, we can do things of that sort as long as we understand what a good job is. And that's where the education and demonstration with case studies is really a way of doing that. So you have stories, if yes. you will. That's what I would recommend is, is a real focus on lessons learned. I think the, uh, one of the things that, that, um, that the government can do is to increase its tolerance of failure. Uh-huh. Uh, we're asking people to take a lot of risks. At the same time, if they fail, we punish them. So they're less inclined to, to take those risks. They want to comply with all the regulations, and, and they, they uh, are less inclined necessarily to put together an aggressive program that's going to be uh, successful. So I think we have to look at, at uh, how we train people, uh, make sure that they don't focus just on complying with all the, the regulations and rules, but uh, actively think about making a program successful are willing to take some risks to do that. And occasionally when they fail, we have to be able to tolerate that and say that was just the cost of doing business. You know, maybe we can retrain them or do something else with them and not necessarily end their careers or punish them. And even that gets into the education side. If you, if all you're doing is training them on what are the rules instead of also on the difference between leadership and, and management where leaders will question, as Bill points out, and you have to be able to, to make changes because the world is changing. Mm-hmm. Technology, new technology is coming along, new geopolitical situations are coming along, new strategic situations are coming along, and the rules may not cover those new things. And so just treating it as only a compliance question doesn't match what's needed as the world is changing. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation on a very important topic, and I want to thank you for joining me today. Uh, But more importantly, I want to thank you for the report you created for us at the IBM Center. It's a wonderful report, and folks can download it at businessofgovernment.org. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. This has been a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness with Dr. Jack Gansler and Bill Lucian from the University of Maryland's School of Public Policy and authors of the IBM Center Report, Eight Actions to Improve Defense Acquisition, You may download or order a free copy of this or any IBM Center report at businessofgovernment.org. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. What can government executives learn from the GAO's high-risk list? What have agencies done over the years to get their programs off the list? How can programs stay off the list in the first place? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Dr. Don Kettle, author of the IBM Center Report, Managing Risk, Improving Results, Lessons for Improving Government Management from GAO's High Risk List. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m.